Thank you very much. Um, I can't tell you how pleased I am to be contributing to a series of lectures over which uh, Mr. presides because I started out life in the British diplomatic service as a Soviet specialist. I was trained to speak Russian. And I was, we were just talking before we came in here about the dramatic, humane, human effect of Gorbachev on anybody dealing with uh, what was then said to be. And in 1984, as I was about to leave Moscow for the last time, um, the very last job I was given, the last piece of work I was given, was to go into the Kremlin, go and see somebody in the Central Committee of the Communist Party, and put, finalize the details for Mr. Gorbachev's very first visit to the United Kingdom. And he met Margaret Thatcher, and she said her famous aphorism that this was a man with whom she could do business. And it was extraordinarily refreshing to sit on one side of the table and have him on the other side of the table. Instead of having a Soviet politician who looked like an Easter Island statue, you actually had a living, breathing human being who rushed to argue with you. And when your slab-faced Soviet star ambassador tried to interrupt him, like that, almost hitting him in the face, and Polish shut up. Well, that's the excellent. It's not what I've come here to talk about, but that's why I would mention that. Because actually, ladies and gentlemen, I want to, I want to make a, um, a revelation to you that I am from the planet Mars. And in my capacity as interplanetary media consultant, I have come to see how you regulate the press in the United Kingdom on Earth. And I have to say, it's a rum situation that I have discovered. My first port of call was naturally the Press Complaints Commission at its modest headquarters at Halton House in deepest Homan. Business, I found it booming. When Lord Hunt, the new chairman, took over yesterday, he would have found complaints running at over 7,000 a year. When in 2003, the then chairman, Sir Christopher Mayer, took office, the figure was only around 2,500. The growth has been striking. When Mayer left office after six years, the figure had almost doubled. So, I said to my friendly PCC contact, the standards of the British press must have collapsed vertiginously in a very short space of time. Not so, came the reply. It's mainly down to greater public awareness of the PCC and the services it can provide. I delved further. But surely, most of these complainants are Famous people who live in London and have their lives tormented by the so-called red drops. Wrong again, I was told. Nine out of ten of those who lodge complaints for the Press Complaints Commission lay no claim to celebrity. Roughly half of all complaints are about, <coughs> excuse me, are about the regional, not national newspapers. There are more privacy complaints about regional newspapers than the notorious red drops. Privacy cases seize the headlines, but fully half of all complaints are about accuracy. Interesting, not what I had expected. What about sanctions, I asked? On Mars, we have capital punishment for editors who get it wrong, sometimes preceded by waterboarding and mutilation when the error is especially <coughs> egregious. We don't go that far, said my amiable PCC contact. Most of the time, we aim to mediate between complainant and editor. That must take ages, I commented. 
Not at all, said the man from the PCC. On average, it takes about a month to resolve complaints to the reader's satisfaction. And that's because there's no money at stake and lawyers are not involved. The resolution will take the form of a published apology, correction, retraction, or just a reader's letter. In the bad old days, said my contact, the papers were loath to give prominence to these remedies. They would be hidden at the back of the paper, among the advertisements for hernia trusses and stairlifts. Now, four out of five will appear on the same page as, or further forward than, the offending article. Yes, yes, I said, that's all pretty well and good. But where's the punishment in the system? Surely, if you don't do decapitation, you must at least find offending editors. No, we don't, came the answer. And what is more, we don't want to. Tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I was flabbergasted. Sounds like a good idea, said my agreeable interlocutor. But it's a snare and a delusion. Consider this. How on earth could we agree the tariff? The place would be crawling with lawyers. There would be appeals which might go all the way to Strasbourg. The whole process would clog up. It would probably be necessary, horror of horrors, to pass a law. The UK is already far enough down the slippery slope to state regulation of the press. Anathema to anyone who believes in freedom of speech and the press. On Mars, of course, we don't bother about such passages. And what is more, a blush coming to my contact's cheek as he warmed his theme, even if you could agree a tariff, its likely deterrent value would be negligible against today's background of punitive fines, damages, and costs when editors fall foul of the law. I have to say that I found this quite convincing, but I was not yet ready to concede the point. Even if I accept your argument, I said, you still have not told me where the sanction is in the system. Ah, my interlocutor replied, actually, that's easy. We have two of the most effective sanctions on earth, and there I suggest, in the solar system. Fear and ego. You see, the principle of issue was impeccably expressed some hundred years ago by the Anglo-French author Hilaire Belloc, who wisely said, and I quote, and always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse. Belloc's aphorism, said the man from PCC, is especially apt for the editors of today's newspapers, with self-regulation playing the role of nurse, and state regulation in support, if that is the right word, as worse. You're starting to lose me, I reposted. What on Mars do you mean? Editors, said he of Halton House, know that if they bring the PCC's code of practice into systematic disrepute, then state regulation is coming down the pike as night follows day, just as they know that if they break the law, fines or imprisonment beckon. And where does Ego fit in, I asked. My contact leaned towards me, his lips almost touching my ear. There is a dark secret, he muttered, looking around as if to check that nobody was eavesdropping, that dare not speak his name. It is the editors, the scourge of the rich and powerful, have terribly thin skins. 
That's why the PCC's negative adjudication is such a potent sanction and deterrent. Let me explain. We take a case to a formal meeting of the Commission's board, when either we cannot resolve the dispute between editor and complainant, or there is such an important point of principle at stake that it demands an ex cathedra public ruling from the Commission. Sometimes the ruling will reject the complaint, sometimes it will condemn the editor. In the latter case, the editor must publish prominently and in full the text of the education. I can't tell you, whispered my PCC source, eyes a glint, how much they hate being named and shamed in their own newspaper. They protest violently. One broadsheet that should have known better threatened even to leave the PCC system because it was adjudicated against. That's a bit rich, isn't it, I asked? But you see, said the man from the PCC, there are some august publications who believe that we exist only to tame tabloid excess. And when they get it wrong and receive our close attentions, they react like a maiden aunt faced with a flasher on the Piccadilly line. After further agreeable exchanges in the Spain, the moment approached me to take my leave and move on to my next appointment at the Office of Communications, Ofcom, where I was looking forward to the branded mineral water that they provide. But I said, putting on my Martian impermeable, there is one thing that bothers me mightily. If I understand you correctly, the Press Complaints Commission has never been more used by the public than it is today. You are as active in giving advice pre-publication to editors and readers as you are in responding to complaints. You provide an anti-harassment service which neither Ofcom nor the BBC have and which is apparently strikingly effective on behalf of people caught in the media's glare. You run training courses for journalists, poll after poll, some admittedly conducted by yourselves, others by independent voting organisations, underline the broad approval uh, that the PCC enjoys. Politicians, I'm told, would sell their grandmothers, even to Martians, in return for approval ratings of 65% and more, which is what you consistently get. And you're not even really running a system of self-regulation. When your 17-person board of commissioners has a lay majority and only three editors from national newspapers. And, finally, you are, you are regarded abroad by those who believe in freedom of the press as the gold standard for regulation. So, my dear friend, allowing myself a martial intimacy, if all this is true, why has your Prime Minister, accompanied by the leaders of the Liberal Democratic and Labour parties, declared you to be a failed organisation and set up this Leveson inquiry that would lead to your oblivion? Why is it that pillars of rectitude such as Lord Prescott are so angry with you? How come, and this is really baffling to an outsider, Lord Leveson's inquiry should have as its principal advisor a certain Sir David Bell, who was chairman of the Media Standards Trust, issued a report on the PCC in 2009, which even The Guardian described as failing, quote, hopelessly lacking any academic 
Ritter. My deep throat to the PCC looked at me wearily, shrugging his shoulders. It's the phone hacking scandal, what kind, he said. It's political expediency aimed at an easy target to divert attention from more awkward matters. We are surrogate for the press itself. It's a long story. What I suggest you do, since David Hunt has hardly had time to get his feet under the desk, is pop on and see one of our former chairmen, Christopher Mann. After all, it was during his watch that this phone hacking business first came to light. And so, a few days later, that is exactly what I did. And this is what Christopher Mayer told me. I don't know how you do things on Mars, but when not being a diplomat, I was twice a government spokesman. First at the Foreign Office, and then later for Prime Minister John Major at Downing Street. This taught me a few things, the most important of which was this. However much politicians might grovel to editors and proprietors, and by God they grovel, even the weakest government has significant inbuilt advantages over the press through its control of the flow of information. The Freedom of Information Act has far from removed this imbalance. So this reinforced me in the belief that any state regulation of the press was in principle offensive and a threat to freedom of speech. I had my first brush with press regulation when I was working in London 10 in 1994. I had inherited from my predecessor, Gasser now Sir Gasser and about to retire as cabinet secretary. I inherited from him a draft white paper on a privacy law. This had already been the subject of extensive but fruitless white law discussion. In the end, the draft was shelved. This was partly because the Prime Minister didn't want to get on the wrong side of editors shortly before a general election, and there was as well a fear that such a law, without the provision of legal aid, would become a rich man's charter. But it had also proved impossible, this is a very important point, uh, my dear Martian friend, that it had also proved impossible to reach an agreed definition, save at the broadest level of generality, on the boundary between the private and the public space, between what was legitimately in the public interest and what belonged to private life. And this is no less contentious today. The entry into force of the Human Rights Act, HRA, some 10 years ago, far from resolving this controversy, has simply focused it with ever greater intensity on a Manichaean struggle between Article 8, the right to privacy, and Article 10, freedom of speech. The debate, dear Marshall, is not going to be resolved definitively anytime soon, if ever. Views are highly subjective, reflecting deeply entrenched and opposing positions. We see this reflected even within the law. In the famous Naomi Campbell case, which went all the way from the court of first instance to the law laws, where it was settled on a split decision revolving around a point of detail. One of the things that has become clear from judges' privacy rulings under the Human Rights Act, whether or not you agree with them, is that despite a growing body of jurisprudence, so much has to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. 
The DCC, which for every one privacy case that goes through the courts, will deal with a score or more, possesses the single largest corpus of case law on privacy in the United Kingdom. And what folly would be to jettison this invaluable asset. In my last four years as chairman in 2008, we ruled on over 300 privacy cases. But despite this, and the fact that the PCC's code of practice has a number of clauses dealing with different aspects of privacy, we never venture a final definition of the public interest. And the boundary between it and the sanctity of private life, the best we could realistically do was to list those clauses, including that on subterfuge, to which I will come in a moment, which enjoyed a so-called public interest exception allowing for the clause of suspension. If a matter being investigated by a reporter was deemed to be or likely to be of legitimate public interest, the code therefore illustrates the kinds of cases which might fall into this category rather than trying to do the impossible and define comprehensively what constitutes the public interest. At the PCC, as in the courts, though general principles can be adduced and refined through precedent over time, it is not possible to establish a definition for all seasons that removes the need for a case-by-case -case approach. So why may be tempting, especially with all the hoo-ha around phone hacking, to go to the House of Commons for the Privacy Bill, a draft bill, any statute which then subsequently emerged would be prey to all the difficulties which I have just described. It is hard to see how new legislation would be able to move beyond general principles of the kind set up already in the Human Rights Act. More to the point, it would be the self-same judges who have incurred the wrath of some editors in their interpretation of the Human Rights Act <coughs> who would apply the new statute. I have there, Marshall, gone into this in some detail to illuminate a wider point. The law and the Press Complaints Commission should sing in harmony, though not necessarily in unison. Judges are constitutionally required by the Data Protection Act to take account of the code practice. PCC commissioners, by definition, must reach decisions which do not conflict with the law. For the ordinary citizen with a grievance against the press, there can be a choice between seeking a remedy either in the courts or at the PCC. And as I used to say when I was chairman, ad nauseam, there is a time for the law and a time for the PCC. If you're seeking damages and benefit from a contingency fee arrangement with your solicitors, no minimum fee. Uh, <coughs> The law may look like an attractive option, but it is not very fast. And the intrusion into your privacy for which you are seeking damages can be plastered all over the media in gloriously detailed court reporting, so compounding the original injury. That's what happened to Max Mosley, who I think is coming next to speak week. to you next week. Yes, well, it'll be interesting. So if you're not interested in money, shun publicity, and want a swift outcome, the PCC is the place for you. Free, fast, and fair, 
is not just uh, an Adman's an slogan. I personally believe that had Max Mosley come to the BCC, he could have won. Are you still with me, dear Marshall? Good. So let's press on. So, the BCC's code of practice frequently overlaps with the law. That is the case with its clause 10 on subterfuge. This is the clause that covers things like the hacking of phones. Let me quote one or two bits from it. The press must not seek to obtain or publish material acquired by using hidden cameras or clandestine listening devices, or by intercepting private or mobile telephone calls and messages or emails, or by the unauthorized removal of documents or photographs, blah, 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 uh, without the consent of the individual concerned. Engaging in misrepresentation or subterfuge, including by agents or intermediaries, can generally be justified only in the public interest, and then only when the material cannot be obtained by other means, the public interest exception. In other words, offences under the code can be offences under the law, but where this happens, and the matter becomes sub judice, the Press Complaints Commission must always give way to the law. This is what happened in 2006 and 2007 when the phone hacking face, excuse me, case first hit the headlines. Where the BCC could make no investigation of its own until court proceedings had been brought to a conclusion. And this leads to a further point of very, very great importance. The British press is actually, in reality, not disciplined just by a system of self-regulation, but by a hybrid regulatory structure which controls the press and the media as a whole. What do I mean by that? The BBC, for example, is regulated by Ofcom and its own trust. The press is regulated through the PCC, through the courts, and through a number of laws that constrain its freedom. The Data Protection Act, the Human Rights Act, the Regulation of Investigatory Practices Act, the Bribery Act, the Computer Act, uh, to name but five, or was that six? Five. It was, of course, under the Regulation of Investigatory Practices Act uh, that Clive Goodman and Glenn Mulcair were prosecuted and sent to jail for phone hacking. I would argue that in this case, the one that sees the headlines first on phone hacking, the star of it all, I would argue that in this case, leave aside any defects in the police investigation, which may prove to have been very great. The hybrid British system of press regulation worked exactly as it was designed to do. A crime was investigated, a successful prosecution mounted, and an editor resigned. The question, then for the PCC, then for me as chairman, was not, why did we not spot this malfeasance and deal with it, which would have required commissars in every newsroom with the powers of uh, telepathy and X-ray eyes, but whether, after the police investigation and trial, there was anything further for the PCC to do other than to exhort journalists to obey the law. To argue otherwise, as many still do, is to seek to confer on the PCC powers of investigation tantamount to those of the police. For example, the authority to take sworn statements. This would, in my view, 
be utterly objectionable in principle, since these powers could be granted only by statute, and a line would have been crossed into state regulation of the press. It cannot be the role of a self-regulatory system to enforce the criminal law. There was, of course, more for the PCC to do after Mr. Coulson's resignation and the imprisonment of Messrs. Goodman and Malcair. And let me just tell you what I mean by that. As early as the summer of 2006, when the Commission first became aware of the police investigation, it condemned publicly any breach of Clause 10 of the Code, the subterfuge clause, and reserved the right to conduct its own investigation depending on the outcome of that of the police. I repeated this to Mr. Coulson later in the year. I had in mind, especially if there were a guilty verdict, that there would be issues of editorial and management control in which the PCC would have a direct interest. After Messrs. Goodman and Mulcair were found guilty, that was at the beginning of 2007, Mr. Coulson resigned as editor of the News of the World, we issued a press release at the beginning of February stating that the public has a right to know that lessons have been learned from this episode, both of the newspaper and more generally. And we went on to announce an investigation that would focus on what went wrong at the News of the World, on what steps would have to be taken to ensure no recurrence, and what internal controls were in place across the entire newspaper industry to ensure compliance with the code of the law in investigative reporting. In short, far from trying fruitlessly to duplicate the police investigation, the Commission took the opportunity to learn lessons and to establish new and higher standards for the newspaper industry as a whole. Our investigation involved writing to every single editor and manager of UK newspapers and magazines. We obtained what appeared, what appeared to be a detailed account from the new editor of the News of the World of what had gone wrong under his predecessor. All of this was published in a report in May 2007 which made a series of recommendations for the industry which are valid today. That contracts with inquiry agents should contain an explicit requirement to abide by the PCC's Code of Practice on the Data Protection Act. That there should be in all publications an effective and well understood quote unquote subterfuge protocol for staff journalists with an identified individual to give advice on whether the public interest was sufficiently engaged to justify subterfuge. And that, though contractual compliance with the code was widespread, it should become universal without delay in the contracts of all staff journalists. Now there are other things as well, but those are the most important. And let me say, in the interests of uh, dispelling any fog of selective amnesia, which I would hate to see drift towards the Red Planet, I should add that the PCC report was welcomed by the government, the newspaper industry, the Select Committee for Cultural Media and Support, and passed the smelling salts for the most part by the Guardian. On the New for the World, we reported the only thing that we could have reported at the time, namely that nothing had emerged from the police inquiry or Mr. Colin Myler's disclosures, that was the new editor of the 
views of the world to suggest that the Goodman Malcare case had been more than a lone rogue operation. Now at this point, my dear solar system traveller, we come to the heart of the matter. In the events of 2006 and 2007, there was a proper division of powers between the courts, the police, the information commissioner, and the press complaints commission. And that point remains valid whether or not the police investigation was detected. The blunt truth is that the phone hacking scandal, a matter of criminal investigation, is neither particularly useful nor relevant to the future of the Press Complaints Commission or press regulation in general. It has, in fact, it has, in fact, become a distraction from what needs to be done to reform the PCC. Now, the levels of inquiry, whether you've been following all this, probably not in Mars, but maybe in Oxford, the levels of inquiry has generated a cornucopia of ideas for reforming press regulation. Some would lead, in strict logic, to the disbanding of the established church because people persist in sinning, or of the police because they are unable to stop crime before it happens. Others, such as the licensing of journalists, are just sinister, the kind of thing you would find in a totalitarian state. Still others, such as abolishing the PCC and replacing it with something else, will end up, as Professor Roy Greenslade has prophesied, with a rebadged body looking very much like the current commission, but with enhanced powers. And why not this Roy Greenslade prophecy? You are sure read his blog in and articles in Media Guardian and Evening Standard, and he is somebody whose views, although they don't always agree with mine, um, I very much uh, respect. It would, after all, his prophecy be fully in the tradition of the permanent evolution that has characterized the Press Complaints Commission since its creation only 20 years ago. Over 30 changes to the code of practice. Though I say it myself, major reforms I introduced in 2003. The extension of the PCC's mandate to newspapers' websites, including audiovisual content in 2007. Lady Buscombe's changes to the PCC's internal governance in 2010. And even as I speak, the current commission, as distinguished and diverse a body as you would wish to find, is elaborating further changes which Lord Leveson would do well to heed before he comes to judgment. So, Sir Christopher, I asked, interrupting his impassioned flow, what would you do to make the PCC fit for purpose, as you say, on this planet? If I had done a third term, said the former chairman, I would have pressed in three directions. Firstly, I would have sought to enhance the Commission's credibility and raise its profile. This means rebalancing its relationship with its paymasters, the newspaper and magazine industry, such that it is visibly and substantively more independent. For example, and here we must descend the weeds a little bit, at present the Code Committee 
and the Press Standards Board of Finance, both excrescences of the self-regulatory system, are the unique preserve of the industry. The chairman and director of the PCC attend their meetings by invitation. This monopoly cannot go on. The Code Committee, which meets at least once a year to review possible changes to the Code, should have an equal number of editors and independent commissioners. The Press Standards Board of Finance, which fixes the BCC's budget and discusses matters of policy and personnel, must also admit independent commissioners from the BCC as full members. I would not go so far as to remove editors from the commission, as some have demanded, because it is important that their voice, national and regional, be heard. After all, the buck stops with them. And I can think of no occasion in six years of chairing meetings of the BCC when its editorial members, seven in all out of 17, got together in a solid caucus on any issue. But there may be scope for tilting the ratios to the further in favour of independent commissioners, perhaps within a reduction of overall numbers. Secondly, the PCC should have the power to direct editors where to place corrections, apologies, adjudications and the like, both in print and online. The prominence of these things is less of an issue than it used to be, but it still can involve needlessly tortuous negotiation between commission and editor. Third, and last, the strategic goal must be to turn the PCC into a badge of journalistic excellence. This is particularly important in an online age when sources of information have proliferated a thousandfold. There should be an inside the pale and a beyond the pale. Inside the pale <coughs> comprises all those publications, print and online, that benefit from a PCC seal of approval or kite mark and are willing to pay a subscription for that privilege. <clears throat> this will guarantee to the reader certain basic standards of news gathering, news reporting, and comment, with the possibility of remedy under the code of practice when things go wrong. And it may finally convince newspapers that it is in their own best interests to advertise prominently the existence of the PCC and its services. Membership of the pale would be obligatory for larger news organizations, such as Northern and Shell, the Publishing Express and Starfighters, who have taken themselves out of the PCC system. And this may be the only area where statute may have to be prayed in aid. Beyond the pale would be for the wild and woolly, mainly internet, where readers take their chances from the glorious free-for-all of the good and the bad and the ugly. So, there you are, O denizen of Mars, a few ideas for you to chew on. To paraphrase Churchill, self-regulation is the worst system of press scrutiny until you compare it to all the others. And on that note, we set our farewells, and I raced to catch the afternoon shuttle to Mars. Thank you.